This morning's text is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-11. through 11. I invite you to take your Bible and open to that. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you. It's found on page 1,440. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-11. to 11. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Last week as I was praying with Noel, I found myself without even forethought thanking the Lord for being human. I said things like... uh, Thank you that I can see and hear and feel. Thank you that I can think about this reality that I see and I hear. Thank you that I can form judgments about it and talk about right and wrong and good and bad and beautiful and ugly. And thank you that there can, on the basis of these judgments, uh, be strong, deep emotions of joy and sadness and hope and discouragement and hate and love. And thank you that on the basis of all this, I can, I can plan and, and strategize in the hopes of accomplishing something worthwhile. And thank you most of all that all of this, all of this human activity gets caught up into knowing and Loving and serving the greatest being in all the universe. It was one of those uh, rare moments when you when you feel like you've just kind of, without even planned it, brushed with eternity, and you've just kind of been awakened to the wonder that you are created in the image of God to deal with the living God, and all the capacities that you have are not just ordinary. We have a dog. Her name is Sable. And one of the great benefits of having a dog, I have found, is that I have a heightened sense now that I am not one. And I I look at her, and she's kind and loving and gentle and forgiving and warm and... And she can really kindle strong affections and a relationship. And then it hits me, she's a dog. She's just a dog. And I'm not. She doesn't ever lose a a night's sleep over what's the meaning of being a dog. She never asks any ultimate questions at all about where she came from or why she's here and what's her identity. She's just there. 
And I'm not. I'm always asking questions about where did I come from and why am I here and where am I going and is it worthwhile and am I on track and I do lie awake at night thinking about all those things. It's good to have a dog around so you can remember that you're not one. You are something so different. And those questions that she never asks I think are peculiarly human things. Only humans kill each other and kill ourselves when we don't get satisfying answers to the question, where do we come from? Who am I? Why am I here? What's it all about? Only humans kill, commit suicide when those questions don't get satisfying answers. Turtles, dogs, and horses, and mosquitoes, and dolphins. They never worry about those things. It is a wonder to be a human. It is an amazing thing to be a human. Now, it isn't often in the text that those questions get such a resoundingly clear, brief, pointed answer as they get in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Who am I? How did I get this identity? What's it for? Why am I here? And so what I want us to do is take a deep breath now, go back, as it were, to the beginning. And for some of you, it may be the beginning. I don't know. And some for whom it's not the beginning, it may feel like you need a beginning. And ask those questions, those fundamental, basic, rock-bottom questions. And, and specifically, we're asking it for Christians, because I think Christians answer those three questions differently from anybody else in the world. So we're going to let God, through His inspired Apostle Peter, answer those three questions, and they have amazingly clear, forthright answers in these two verses, verses 9 and 10. Who are you as a Christian? How'd you get to be that way as a Christian? What are you here for as a Christian? And I'm sure if this were a small group right now, instead of a, a preaching event, we'd give an open discussion and all those answers would be clear as day from the text. But let me try just to guide you. The first question, who are you? There are five Identity statements in this text. Number one, verse nine. You are a chosen race. Now, I know that that's a corporate identity, and I want to talk to you as individuals. I thought about, can I do that? Can I, can I take you are a chosen race and make it an individual thing? And I think I can for this reason. The race he's talking about is not racial. You all know that. You are a chosen race does not mean white is chosen, black is chosen, yellow is chosen, red is chosen. That's not true. You are a chosen race means you are an assembly of people from white, black, red, brown, because 
you were chosen out. The ground of your chosenness isn't race or any other qualification that you bring. In fact, it happened before you were born, before the foundation of the world, and is unconditional entirely. So your first identity is that you are chosen. You are chosen individually to be a part of the chosen race from all the races. I'm chosen. I don't know why I was chosen. It was not owing to anything in me. I didn't earn it. I didn't merit it. I stand in awe of it. I tremble when I think about it happening. I long to be faithful to whatever destiny is attached to it. My mouth is shut by it. It is an awesome thing to begin your destiny or your identity with the words, I am chosen. That's number one. Number two. You are pitied. The end of verse 10 says, You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now the reason I choose the word pitied is because in the original language, mercy is a verb, and you can't make it a verb in English. I would like to say you are mercied. That's what the Greek says. You are mercied, graced. But we do have a word, pitied. And it does mean almost the same thing. Maybe pity isn't quite active enough. It's kind of an emotional, you can pity somebody as you walk by them. That's not what God did. So it's not an adequate word. You are pitied. You are mercied. You are graced. When God chose you, He did not then, after seeing you in your sin and guilt and condemnation, distance himself from you. His choosing you implied a pity and a mercy upon you, and he moved in. And your second identity is, I am a pitied person by God. I am a mercied, a graced person. My identity is not fundamentally the actions I have done, but the fact that I have been acted upon. I am an acted upon one. A chosen one first, and a pitied one, or a mercied one, or a graced one second. My identity is not first in anything I did or am doing. It is a chosenness and a pity that came my way. See how Peter is drawing our attention in our identity to what God did on us. Number three, you are God's possession. Verse nine, it's expressed twice really. Verse nine, you are a people for God's own possession. Verse 10, you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God, God's people, God's possession. You were chosen. You were pitied, you were possessed by God. Now, I know God owns everything. That doesn't sound 
like any special big deal, does it? But obviously means something more than his general ownership of all the world. The world is the Lord's and everything in it. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a special possessing as his own inheritance. When when Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 6.16, when he says, they will be my people and I will be their God, he goes on to say, and I will walk among them, be known by them. So this possession that he's talking about is that God takes us possession for himself that he might give himself to us in a personal, walking with us kind of relationship. So my identity is first that I was chosen, second that I was acted upon with pity, and third that I was taken possession of by God that he might give me a personal, walking with me kind of relationship. Those are my three identities so far. Number four, you are holy. Verse nine, you are a holy nation. God chose you. God pitied you. God took possession of you. Number five, you are a royal priest. Verse nine, you are a royal priesthood, he says to the church. Chosen by God, pitied by God, possessed by God, sanctified in holiness by God, now made a royal priest to God. And we all know what that means, except Peter brings a new thing to bear here. We know that a priest has direct access to the throne, holy place. He doesn't have to go through anybody else. God has made one mediator between God and man. We go to God through God. God-man, Jesus Christ. So our priesthood has a vertical dimension. We have access to God. You can fall down on your face anywhere, anytime. And God will look upon you and say, you're my priest. I receive you. Minister to me now. Or ask for me what you will on behalf of your friends, your family, the people you represent. And the vertical dimension of the priesthood, of course, is that we intercede for one another. But here, there's something more. Our identity is leading into a priesthood which leads to a very special calling that he articulates for us in this text. But before I I focus in on that, because that's the answer to our third question, why are we here? Let me go to the second question. Namely, how do we get to be this way? Go back and review first. Five identity statements. You are chosen and you are pitied and you are possessed by God for himself and you are holy, you are a priesthood. Our identity is fundamentally how God has acted upon us and the relationship he's made with us. Now, the second question is, how would you get to be that way? And the answer is just almost too obvious to ask because it's included in every one of the identity statements. Isn't it remarkable the kind of language Peter uses for identity? Chosen by God, pitied by God, possessed by God, set apart as holy for God, invested with royal priesthood to God. How'd you get to be that way? Well, God did it, obviously, but he, he makes it even clearer 
Here in verse 9, he identifies God like this. Him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he called you. That's how you got to be this way. What is the marvelous light? The marvelous light is the light of being chosen. The light of being pitied. The light of being possessed by God. The light of being holy. The light of being a priest. How did you get into that light? Into that awesome identity, that bright, shining identity of marvelous light. Answer, called you. Come forth. Enter the light. So the answer, how did we get to be that way, is God's irresistible call. Now let's move to question number three. What are we here for? If our identity is that we are chosen, pitied, possessed, holy, priests, we got that way by virtue of God's sovereign work to a call. Why? To what end? Verse 9 at the end of the verse, very clear. It's all for this reason, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the meaning of our priesthood. We are priests in order to proclaim God's excellencies. Now, there's a lot of discussion today about self-concept, self-identity, how we view ourselves, and it's a very important question. What I hope you hear this morning from this text is the unique specifically biblical angle on this question of Christian selfhood. And the unique biblical angle is that Christian selfhood is defined not in terms of who we are in ourselves. Christian selfhood is defined in terms of what God did to us, the relationship he creates with us, and the destiny he appoints for us. Our identity is not found in a mirror or any survey we might take or any analysis we might do of ourselves. Our identity is the action of God on us, the relationship of God to us, and the destiny of God appointed for us. A Christian cannot talk of who he is apart from God and the action of of God. The biblical understanding of human self-identity is, in other words, radically God-centered. Who am I? Who are you? You are a God-chosen one. You are a God-pitied one. You are a God-possessed one. You are a God-sanctified one. You are one taken by God and put into a priesthood to God. You don't know who you are unless you define yourself in terms of those actions of God on you, the resulting relation of God with you, and the destiny of God appointed for you for His glory, namely, the declaring of His excellencies among the peoples. It's an amazing thing, an amazing way that the Bible talks about our identity. 
We're supposed to be what we are that God might be seen to be who he is. You are who you are so that God may be known for who he is. That's the meaning of Christian identity. We exist and get our identity from the destiny to make God known. How so? We're supposed to make known the excellency of his freedom in choosing us, the excellency of his grace in pitying us, the excellency of his authority and power in taking possession of us from all the peoples of the world, the excellency of his worth and purity in making us holy and sanctified. In other words, he has given us an identity so that his identity will be unmistakable in the world. Now, this this really ought to just lift you amazingly because the world doesn't have a clue, by and large, about why they exist as human beings. They don't have a clue. They look at a dog and they say, well, I guess we're just a little bit higher than a dog, but she is better than us in some ways. A dog, we're just kind of a bump up on the scale of evolution. When you read texts like this, it just takes your breath away who you are and what you're called to be and what relationship he's put you into. The meaning of our identity is that the excellency of God might be seen in us. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to God, your Father in heaven. You are an emblem of God. You're a reflection of God. Your meaning on the earth is that God might be known in you and through you. How do you do it? We, we do it in church. I hope we do it in church. Gathered, singing His excellencies, preaching His excellencies, praying His excellencies. We do it in small groups. The meaning, the meaning of human small groups is for people to get together and say how much they need God. And for somebody else to say how much God is adequate for that need. And for that transaction to be edifying for God's glory as His excellency is made known in the small group, as it carries the group through the problems of the people within it. It happens at work. When you meet over lunch and people ask about Rwanda or they ask about what you did on the weekend and you tell them about why you are so thankful for a God so that if our society collapsed into chaos and people moved in here like they did in that church last week in Rwanda and killed twice this many people with machetes and guns, we could, as we went down, say, to die is gain because God is more to be desired than life. That's what you can say over lunch at work. And we can do it in all the manifold ways of love that fit your personality and your situation. Let me close with one illustration. I got this in the mail yesterday from a man that I've come to admire very much. Doug Nichols is the head of Action International Ministries, a ministry of street children around the world. He's got cancer right now, which is irrelevant to this story. But he's an amazing person in his cancer. 1967, Doug was in India with Operation Mobilization. Young man, 
poor, like most of the people in Operation Mobilization, and he got tuberculosis. Couldn't even ship him home. He had to go into an Indian sanitarium with a whole bunch of other Indian poor, ordinary uh, people with tuberculosis. Very sick, coughing, coughing. He was there for several months. One night, this happened several nights in a row, he'd wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, coughing like you do if your TB is in in the advanced stage. And and, uh, while he was coughing and couldn't go back to sleep, he noticed an old man right across, there was just a whole bunch of them in the room, an old man trying to get out of bed. A little skinny man didn't weigh more than 100 pounds. He got his feet on the floor and trembled back and forth and started to whimper and cry and fell back into bed. He didn't know what was going on. In the morning, the place just reeked. The stench was awful. Everybody got mad at the old man because he couldn't contain himself, and the nurses were all upset. One of the nurses slapped the old man as she changed his bedding. And the next night, the same thing happened. Two o'clock, he wakes up with his coughing, and he sees this little, little old, frail, dying man trying to get out of bed. And he puts his feet on the floor, and he wobbles. He can't do it. The old man starts to cry quietly. And he falls back into bed. And Doug, hacking, weak, sick, parenthesis. When he came to the sanitarium, he thought, well, even in my sickness, I'll try to be a witness. He tried to give out these Gospels of John, little little pamphlets in the native language. Nobody was interested. He was an ugly American. Rich, what's he doing in here, taking up a bed in our sanitarium anyway? Didn't get anywhere in his witness. Two o'clock in the morning, he gets out of bed in all of his weakness. He goes over to this old man, and the old man cringes, thinking he's going to hit him. And he puts one arm under his arm and, and head and one under his knees. He doesn't weigh a thing hardly. And he carries him to the bathroom, holds him, brings him back, puts him in bed. And as he puts him down, the man kisses him on the cheek. Goes back to bed. Four o'clock in the morning, somebody wakes him. One of the patients with a steaming cup of tea and motions that he would like one of those booklets. And the rest of that day, everybody was coming to him, asking him for the booklets. The lesson, as I read that yesterday, in relation to this text, was if you act the excellencies of God, if you act the excellencies of God, people will hear the excellencies of God better. Father, we want to linger for a few minutes now before you and worship you. We've seen some wonderful things that you've done for us in choosing us and pitying us and possessing us, sanctifying us, giving us a priestly destiny to honor you and your excellencies in the world. And we want to do that now. And when we're done, prayer teams will be off to the side here and ready and eager to pray with us. But let's just take a little while and sing to the Lord. Let these words from the Lord about who you are because of his action upon you and his relationship with you and his destiny for you sink in as we lift our voices now and declare his praises in song. And perhaps it might be that some sitting here haven't really accepted this identity, have resisted God's action upon them. Let this singing be a bowing, an accepting, a yielding, a submitting of ourselves afresh to what God wants to do 
in us as we sing together.